Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb here and guess that I'm not the only person who likes to watch uh, Fail Army or America's Funniest Home Videos or Ridiculousness or any of those shows where they post videos of people doing dumb things and getting hurt. Half the time, you know exactly what's going to happen from the very beginning of the clip, don't you? Someone's strapped to a souped-up lawnmower and they've got a hockey helmet on and couch cushions duct taped to their chest. You know they're going to crash and burn. Or you see a guy standing on the roof of his house and on the ground below him is the family's trampoline and next to that is the family's above-ground swimming pool. And you know that guy's never going to make it into that pool. And anytime you see someone in their bedroom holding any sort of martial arts instrument, you know what's going to happen, don't you? If it's a sword, you can just say goodbye to that light fixture or that TV that's just in frame. If it's a pair of nunchucks, well, you know that guy won't be singing bass in the choir anytime soon. So my point is, in all these situations, you can tell from the beginning this isn't going to end well. And that's the way the book of Kings is, especially when it comes to the northern kingdom of Israel. It starts off looking like a bad idea, and it turns out to be a bad idea. It ends in utter failure. So let's remind ourselves how the northern kingdom began. Where did all this start? David's son, King Solomon, had been acting a bit like Pharaoh, and his son, Rehoboam, was even worse. So God chose to rip the ten tribes away from the Davidic king and give them to a man named Jeroboam. But Jeroboam was worried that all the northern tribes would still head south to worship God in Jerusalem at the temple that Solomon had built. And he was worried that this would make their hearts turn back to Rehoboam and to the Davidic line. So Jeroboam made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he put one cow in Bethel and the other in Dan, so at the northernmost and southernmost points of the northern kingdom. All of this he set up in opposition to the true king, and to the true temple, and to the true system of worship which God had commanded Israel. That was the birth of the northern kingdom. And the author of Kings wants you to see from the beginning, this isn't going to end well. This is a kingdom that was founded upon idolatry. And the author keeps reminding us of this some 20 times over the course of First and Second Kings thus far, he tells us that such and such a king walked in the way of Jeroboam. Such and such a king did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam. It's like the chorus of the song of the northern kingdom, and it's a chorus of idolatry. And Yahweh has been putting up with it this whole time, as we've seen over weeks, sending prophets to warn his people. He has mercifully delayed judgment. But now the time has come. 
the sins of Jeroboam and of all the kings and all the people who followed in his footsteps finally brings about the end of the northern kingdom. The last king to reign in Israel is Hosea. And in 2 Kings chapter 17, we learn, in the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Okay, so Hosea was bad, but not as bad as the other kings of Israel, which is a pretty low bar, uh, but at least he has that going for him, right? But in verse 3, we learn this. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. So the mighty Assyrian empire are like lions prowling around Israel. They've already started taking land away from Israel. And I want you to remember that image for later, that they are like lions prowling around Israel. They are lions Yahweh has sent to judge idolatrous Israel. Now at first, Hosea, the king, submits to them. But then we have verse 4. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Now think about what's going on here. Israel is under threat from Assyria. Does Hosea cry out to Yahweh for deliverance, for salvation? Does he look to God? No. Who does he look to? He looks to Egypt. He looks to the very nation that once enslaved Israel and from whom Yahweh delivered them at the Exodus. Think about how God has defined himself to Israel all along. You don't have to look far, just look down at verse 7. The people of Israel had sinned against Yahweh their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh. Hosea, why do you want to go back to Egypt? Why do you want to put yourself under the yoke of Pharaoh once again? Hosea would reverse the exodus. He would undo what God has done. It's a bad idea, and it ends up backfiring on Hosea. The king of Assyria hears of this, and he takes Hosea captive. And so now the king of Israel is a slave of, Os of Assyria. Verse 5. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Goza, and in the cities of the Medes. This is the first exile of Israel. The Assyrians take Israelites captive, and they relocate them. They didn't take all the Israelites. Most likely, they would have taken the social elites the ruling class, those who would cause trouble if left in Israel. The commoners, the agricultural workers, would be left in Israel to continue to work the land for the Assyrians. But they take the upper crust of Israelite society, and what they do is they settle them in various locations scattered throughout their empire. 
And it's important to know that this is part of Israel's history. It's relevant for things that happen later in Scripture. For example, why is it that the Apostle Paul later is able to travel all over the ancient world and find Jewish communities everywhere he goes? Well, those Jews were the descendants of exiles like these. The Assyrians dispersed them throughout the world, and many of them remained there and built communities that persisted into New Testament times. So despite Israel's unfaithfulness, and despite the terrible siege and captivity that they have to now endure, Yahweh still uses this event to thrust the Israelites into the Gentile world with the effect that the knowledge of Yahweh spreads far beyond the bounds of Israel. But the author of Kings tells us why all this happened, why Israel was conquered and exiled from the land, it wasn't just that the Assyrians had become so powerful. It, it wasn't just that the Israelite king was really bad at politics. Why did this happen to Israel? God has a sovereign purpose behind the events of world history. Verse 7 tells us, This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against Yahweh their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. The fall and exile of Israel happens because the people sinned against God. And Kings goes on to identify this sin, and it gives us a litany of offenses. It says, they feared other gods. Verse 8, and walked in the customs of the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against Yahweh, their God, things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns. Verse 10. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings. Verse 12. They served idols of which Yahweh had said to them, you shall not do this. He said that in the Ten Commandments. Verse 16. They made for themselves metal images of two calves, the calves that Jeroboam had made, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger. Now we're not going to take the time to read about each one of these things, but all of these things were forbidden by God's law. You can find a passage in Exodus or Deuteronomy that forbids each one of these things. But you see the basic theme, don't you? What are the sins of Israel? All of these things are forms of idolatrous worship. It is because of idolatrous worship that all this has come upon Israel. Whether they're worshiping at the golden calves, at the high places, at the Asherim poles, or sacrificing their own children to the pagan gods, all of these sins have to do with rejecting the worship demanded by Yahweh and embracing the worship of foreign gods. The author of Kings tells us that the exile of Israel was God's judgment for their idolatry. And Israel has no excuse in this. Right in the center of this litany of idolatry, the author tells us in verse 13, Yahweh warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways 
and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. God graciously warned his people that this would happen. But verse 14, but they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been. And pay close attention to this. They did not believe in Yahweh, their God. I would probably translate that. They did not trust Yahweh, their God. Israel's sin is idolatry. That's clear. But I want you to see that ultimately, this is not just about disobedience. It's about faith. The root sin underneath idolatry is always failing to trust God. It's failure to trust God. That's why Israel and her kings seek after all these idols, because they do not trust Yahweh to deliver them. They do not trust Yahweh to save them. They do not trust Yahweh to provide for them. We're not just talking about works here. We're talking about faith. They did not trust in Yahweh, their God. Verse 18, therefore Yahweh was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. He removed them out of his sight. He let the Assyrians come in and conquer his people and take them out of the land he had given them. So we have a reversal of the Exodus here. Now at that time, at the time of the Exodus, God heard his people's cries, and he saw their oppression, and he sent them a deliverer. He saw them, but now God does not see. He has cast Israel out of his sight. They will not be delivered. The author of Kings goes on at this point to tell us that Judah is no better. The southern kingdom followed in the steps of their brothers from the north, and we will see in a few weeks that Judah will eventually fall as well. They will fall to the Babylonians. And Judah, too, will be exiled. But we'll talk more about that when we get there. In verse 21, the author reminds us that this idolatry in Israel goes back to the very beginning. He says, when Yahweh tore Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following Yahweh and made them commit great sin. What was that sin again? Two golden calves, the foundation of Israel's idolatry. And in verse 22, we see the chorus of the song of the north once again. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until Yahweh removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Goes back to the beginning. Jeroboam and his golden calves undoing the exodus. A diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. So the Assyrians have laid siege to and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They have deported many of the Israelites to other lands. What will happen to the land of Israel now? Verse 24 tells us, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, 
and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So just as the king of Assyria deported Israelites to other lands, he has all these other people that he's conquered, and he sends a bunch of them into Israel. Israelites going out, foreign peoples coming in. It's a reversal of the conquest, isn't it? Just as Israel under Joshua once conquered this land and dispossessed the nations who had been living there, now under Hosea, Israel is dispossessed and other nations come in to take their land. And it's interesting that this happens while Hosea is king because his name is basically the same as Joshua in Hebrew. Hosea proves to be an anti-Joshua. Joshua's conquest is undone during his reign. And this, uh, this importation of all these various foreign peoples into Israel is hugely important for the rest of biblical history. It has a massive impact on that society. And we're going to talk about that more in just a moment. But, but when all these people come to Israel and settle there, forced to be settled there by the king of Assyria, something happens. Verse 25. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear Yahweh, Therefore Yahweh sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them. And behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. So you need to know that this is the way the peoples of the ancient Near East viewed the world. Okay. They didn't think there was only one God over all creation. They actually believed that each people group, each region even, had its own God. If you were in Philistia, that was Dagon's territory. If you were in Babylon, that was Marduk's territory. If you were in Sidonia, that was Baal's territory, and so on. They believed all these gods were real, and they were all active in their given territory. And so you had to honor the God of whatever place you were in or bad things were going to happen to you. So when all these foreign peoples come to Israel and these lions start attacking them, they conclude they have somehow offended the local God of this land, the God named Yahweh. Verse 27, Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear Yahweh. Now this was a good thing in one sense, right? It meant that Yahweh's name was not totally forgotten in the land of Israel. But I think we're also meant to see some irony in this. Remember, Yahweh's chosen people have just been exiled from this land precisely because they did not fear Yahweh. When the lions of the Assyrian Empire began attacking the Israelites, it did not drive them to fear God more. They didn't care about his law. They rejected the prophets and the priests that he sent them. But here, after the exile, you have these Gentiles coming into the land, and they actually do fear Yahweh. They respond when he sends lions to judge them. 
these Gentiles actually seek to learn and follow Yahweh's law. And they ask for priests to teach it to them. So it seems like they show more faith in Yahweh than the Israelites did. And that little story, I think, foreshadows a theme that we'll see throughout the Bible. And that is this. When Israel rejects Yahweh, Yahweh goes to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles receive him gladly. So there is some powerful irony going on here with this story of the lions. I think that's partly why it's in here. But still, the Gentiles' response to the judgment of Yahweh falls far short of the complete faithfulness and exclusive worship that Yahweh demands. Whoever this priest was that was sent to them, he did not tell the people to worship at the true temple in Jerusalem, but he, he led worship at Bethel, where one of Jeroboam's golden calves was located. And it appears he didn't preach that Yahweh was the only true God who requires the abandoning of all other false gods, not that you would really expect a priest from the northern kingdom to do that. They hadn't been very good at that so far. But it tells us in verse 29, Every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Succoth Binath, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. So none of these people actually abandoned the gods of their homeland. They simply added Yahweh to the midst, just another territorial deity to be appeased. This is called syncretism. Rather than claiming one religion over against the others, you, you just combine them all. Mix them together. Try to, you know, cover all the bases. What does Yahweh think of syncretism? What did God told Israel at the Exodus? All you have to do is glance down at verse 35. You shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them, but you shall fear Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Israel is to have one God. I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. There's no room for syncretism in the worship of Yahweh. But the northern kingdom has been idolatrous since the beginning. And this huge influx of other peoples and their gods doesn't help. We need to understand this part of the story of the northern kingdom of Israel, of Samaria, all the Israelites who are left in the land fall under the influence of these imported peoples and they intermarry with them and they take on their customs and they take on their gods and what you're left with is syncretistic religion where the name of Yahweh is known but only as one God among the many and his law is not being followed. Knowing about this history is actually really helpful when you're trying to understand the New Testament because where is all this taking place again? What's the capital of the northern kingdom? It's Samaria. What do you call people who come from Samaria? Samaritans, right? Do we hear anything about Samaria and Samaritans in the New Testament? Yeah, we do. What do you know about Samaritans in the time of Jesus? How did the people of the south, of Judah and Jerusalem, 
view Samaritans. They despise them, don't they? Better to be a dog than a Samaritan for them. They, they actually go out of their way to walk around Samaria when they travel from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem in the south because nobody wants to get near the Samaritans and be infected by them. It's why all the Jews of Jesus' day are absolutely appalled when he works miracles in Samaria or when he speaks to a Samaritan woman at a well. It's why it's so scandalous when Jesus tells this story where a Samaritan is the hero and the priest and the Levite are the bad guys. It's why the Jews insult Jesus by calling him a Samaritan. It's why the Holy Spirit has to work a special miracle in Acts 8 to prove to Peter and John that the gospel would actually be going to the Samaritans. All that hatred and animosity between Jews and Samaritans we see in the New Testament, despite their common heritage, it's because of this, because the Samaritans are the remnants of the northern kingdom of Israel. At their beginning, they were cut off from the Davidic line. They refused to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. That would have been bad enough to make Judah despise them. But then here at the time of this exile, they become all intertwined with these foreign people and they adopt their customs and they worship their gods and they stop following the law of Moses. So they are compromised. They are corrupted by pagan worship in the eyes of the southern kingdom. And so the people of the southern kingdom of Judah disown their brothers from the north and they despise them and they want nothing to do with them. Even after the exile, when the author of Kings is writing, he says of the Samaritans in verse 34, to this day they do according to the former manner. They do not fear Yahweh and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law of the commandment that Yahweh commanded the children of Jacob whom he named Israel. And verse 41, so these nations feared Yahweh and also served their carved images and their children did likewise and their children's children as their fathers did, so they do to this day. So this continues on and this dynamic is still in play when Jesus comes onto the scene 700 years later. It goes back to what we're learning right here in 2 Kings 17 and it helps us understand that problem between the Jews of the South and the Samaritans that we see in the New Testament. So 2 Kings 17 is the end of the northern kingdom of Israel. Their king is taken captive. Their best and brightest are scattered throughout the world. Those who remain in the land become compromised and corrupted by foreign ways and foreign gods. We will carry on in the book of Kings and we will see Judah follow much the same trajectory, but the story of the northern kingdom goes no further. They would not heed the gracious call of Yahweh and so he cast them out of his sight. And for the author of Kings, this is no surprise. He knew it was gonna go bad from the beginning. The sins that caused Israel's fall are the same sins upon which it was founded. That repeated refrain, they did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. That's carried down through the whole story. And so the author of Kings wants his audience, wants us to ask, how could this terrible tragedy, this exile, and the loss of the promised land, how could this have been avoided? 
by trusting Yahweh. By trusting the God who delivered you from exile the first time. The God who triumphed over the oppressive Gentile empire and brought you to this land. And trust God enough to obey him. Trust, trusting him that when he says you shall have no other gods, he intends it for your good. Because those other gods are not gods. They cannot save. So have nothing to do with false saviors who promise comfort, safety, flourishing, and life, because only God can provide these things. Trust in him and worship him alone. Trust God by trusting the line of kings to which he has committed himself, the line of David. And even when those Davidic kings fail, trust that God will not. He has promised to raise up the offspring of David and establish his throne forever. Trust that he will one day do that. People of God, we today are to trust that God has done that. He has raised up the son of David. I told you Hosea's name is very close to Joshua and it's the same name as Jesus, Yeshua. At the end of centuries of wicked and idolatrous kings, God finally raised up the true Hosea, the true salvation of Yahweh. Hosea feared the lions at the door, but did not call upon Yahweh to save Israel. Because of this, he lost his crown. He lost his kingdom. His people were taken from him. His land was invaded and given over to foreigners. The better Hosea also faced the lions. He, too, was cast out of God's sight on the cross. But even the cry of his exile is a cry of faith. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus trusted the Father completely and obeyed him fully, his exile in the grave was just long enough to bury our sin and idolatry there. And from the grave, God raised him up and crowned him King of kings and Lord of lords, the emperor of all nations. Because of his faithfulness, the Father gave him the whole world as his dominion, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And now all nations stream into his kingdom, abandoning their idols and laying their glory at his feet. Having already faithfully passed through the exile of death, Jesus shall never be exiled again. He shall never die, and his reign shall never end. And because of his faithfulness, those who put their faith in him will never be exiled from the kingdom, but shall remain with him forever. To him be all blessings, and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. King Jesus, you have faced the exile of death in our place. You have been raised to bring us true exodus from sin and death. Help us to see the idolatry in our lives, the things and people and ideas that we look to for safety and for comfort, for confidence, all these things that are not you. Teach us to put our trust in you and in you alone. 
we pray in your name. Amen.